Well, are we all bright and eager and excited? I thought we got off to a very exciting start. I thought um, Reverend Pontier showed uh, his remarkable efficacy by uh, getting um, uh, that young Garrisy boy to come forward. <laughs> We've all been looking forward eagerly to that day, and we're, uh, we're glad. It Where is he? Where there he is, right up front. But he's on the anxious bench now, so that's... Uh, he walked the sawdust trail, and now he's on the anxious bench. So we're uh, we're glad uh, we're glad for that. I think we need 35 verses of That's right. You know, Billy Graham has just published this new uh, autobiography entitled "Just as I Am," and uh, I wonder if he smiled when he chose that title. But anyway, uh, maybe it just comes immediately to mind. Um, well, yesterday uh, we took the easy part of the topic of, uh, of praise, namely, what shall we sing? And uh, today we come to the somewhat more difficult part, uh, how shall we sing? And um, we're not going to focus just on that question, but um, uh, focus, uh, uh, or at least consider a little more broadly, the whole question of emotion in worship. Uh, we, we just had a time of singing, and I suspect uh, that each one of us in that time of singing had uh, one song that we liked better than another. Uh, perhaps uh, in that time of singing there was one song that had a particular resonance either with uh, something you're feeling or experiencing today or evoked some particular memory that was, uh, that was precious. And... Uh, Therefore, perhaps there was one song or, or more, one or two songs that you sang with a, a particularly heightened emotion. And, of course, that's part of what music does for us. It does heighten our emotions. And uh, all of the theologians in the history of the church who have reflected on music have, have noticed that reality, how it has that effect of heightening emotions. And, of course, emotions are relatively tricky things. I... Uh, I think back, some of you may have heard me tell the story before of um, a student at the seminary a number of years ago who had been converted uh, in a Pentecostal church and had become uh, uh, semi-reformed, that is to say he joined the PCA. Um, that's just a joke for the tape, that's just a joke. Uh, well, we, we have an ongoing debate at the seminary between the OPCs, the only perfect church, and the PCA, the Partially Christian Association. Uh, actually, I was just at the PCA General Assembly. It was very encouraging. I think uh, there are some encouraging uh, uh, developments going on. Anyway, that, uh, we don't want to get to it. Anyway, this young man had been Pentecostal and uh, uh, had become PCA, and uh, I used to kid him that um, he ought to sometime attend Holy Mother Church, which is to say the Christian Reformed Church. And uh, one Sunday evening, lo and behold, uh, he, he came to our congregation in Escondido where we have a very traditional uh, Reformed uh, service. And uh, so I, uh, at the end, went up to this young man. We were good friends and bantered back and forth. And uh, I said to him, well, how did it feel to be in a real church? Uh, and he smiled. And then he got a little more serious and he said, uh, well, it's very nice, but does, anything, does anyone here feel anything? He seemed to think we were living out our mandate to be the frozen chosen. <laughs> and uh, just then, uh, one of our elders was coming up, uh, uh, a very fine uh, Dutch dairyman. And uh, so, uh, somewhat unfairly to the student, I turned to the elder and I said, uh, this young man wants to know if anyone here feels anything when we worship. And the student blushed and was embarrassed. And the elder, his eyes filled with tears. And he said, Oh, when we sing the psalms, it is so moving. And the student learned a lesson that not all emotion is right on the surface. Uh, some emotion is much deeper and more profound. But in any case, God made us emotional beings. Uh, we are intended to be emotional beings, and that means that it is proper that emotions should be part and parcel of our worship. We ought to feel a measure of sorrow when we contemplate our sins. We ought to feel a measure of joy and rejoicing when we contemplate uh, Christ's redemptive work for us. 
And so emotion is appropriate, necessary, inevitable, and good in worship. And we need to affirm that and recognize that. At the same time, we need to recognize that emotions can run amok. Uh, emotions can lead us astray. Uh, now, uh, it is also true that reason can lead us astray. Anything that we possess as human beings can be misused. Um, but it is perhaps uh, also true that emotions are particularly susceptible uh, to being abused and misused and to lead us astray. And that's why, particularly in our Reformed tradition, there's been a great concern that emotions not be misused and that people not be manipulated by emotion. And this isn't just a, a contemporary concern or even a 20th century concern. It's a relatively long-standing concern. Uh, Robert Dabney, the great Southern Presbyterian theologian of the 19th century, once wrote, Blinded men are ever prone to imagine that they have religious feeling because they have sensuous animal feelings in accidental juxtaposition with religious places, words, or sights. This is the pernicious mistake which has sealed up millions of self-deceived souls for hell. That's a very strong statement. But the more I ponder it, the more I think it's right that there are many people who walk into a cathedral and in the awesome character of its architecture and in the beauty of its stained glass windows think they have had a religious experience when all they have had is what Dabney would call an animal experience. They have reacted emotionally to perhaps great beauty and because it's a church they think they've had a religious experience when all they've had is a purely natural human experience. Uh, the same can happen, uh, uh, perhaps, uh, in a Pentecostal meeting where there may be a great uh, emotional uh, uh, build-up and because it's a religious meeting, uh, the conclusion is reached that these are religious feelings that have been stimulated when, in fact, they may have been only purely natural feelings that have been stimulated, not far different from the feelings stimulated at a rock concert. And what Dabney is warning us uh, about here is that we have to be careful, we have to be thoughtful, we have to be reflective to realize that heightened emotion by itself does not demonstrate religious experience. And in fact, uh, Jonathan Edwards, you remember, wrote a whole treatise on this subject in good Puritan fashion, writing hundreds of pages, uh, which can be summarized um, in a sentence or two. Um, and at least one of the conclusions that Edwards reached was that heightened emo emotion neither proves nor disproves the presence of genuine religion. And that's good for us to remember. Uh, we must not conclude that the folks upstairs are not having a religious experience just because they're having a rather wild time. But having a wild time does not prove that a religious experience is occurring either. Uh, and uh, that's, the, that's part of the problem of emotion. That's part of the danger of emotion. That's why we have to be so careful. Uh, John Calvin wrote, uh, In truth, we know by experience that singing has great force and vigor to move and inflame the hearts of men to invoke and praise God with a more vehement and ardent zeal. Care must always be taken that the song be neither light nor frivolous, but that it have weight and majesty, as St. Augustine says. And also there is a great difference between music which one makes to entertain men at table and in their houses and the psalms which are sung in the church in the presence of God and his angels. And Calvin there is talking not only about text, but he's moving on to the subject of, of tune. When we lift our voices in praise, it must not be light and frivolous. There's a place for things that are light and frivolous. Um, Calvin probably didn't think there was much of a place for it, but there was uh, some place. Calvin once said, we are nowhere forbidden to smile or enjoy good wine. Um, but uh, that place is not uh, at the church. The church is not a place 
for the frivolous, uh, for the lighthearted. Uh, the, the church and the matters of the church are weighty, and therefore they deserve not only texts, but also tunes that have substance and weight to them, because they carry weighty matters. And therefore, the, the emotions that should be evoked are weighty emotions, not frivolous emotions. Now, it's not always easy to, uh, uh, to distinguish uh, that what, is, what is weighty and what is frivolous. It's not uh, a contrast that is always immediately obvious to everyone. Um, but it is a, a genuine concern and a genuine reality that some tunes are frivolous and some are weighty. Uh, there are um, uh, Broadway musical comedies that uh, may be enjoyable uh, on Broadway, but those tunes would hardly be tunes to which you could set appropriate worship of God. And so um, our forebears gave a lot of thought to questions of music and what kind of music uh, should be present in the church. Uh, all of the reformers were mu uh, musicians and composers. Um, the teaching of composition was one of the things that educated people learned in the 16th century. That's not to say they were great composers, uh, but they were able to do compo composition. They knew something of music theory. They were uh, in a much better position than most of us to be reflective about music. And they did give a good deal of thought to music. There's even a little, um, uh, a little book written on uh, Calvin's theology of music in which uh, the author gathers some of Calvin's reflections on questions of music, and it's, it's really quite interesting. And, and out of that uh, came Calvin's concern that music should stimulate the emotions, but not too much. Emotions shouldn't get carried away. Emotions should stay under control. And uh, I suppose that conviction that emotions must not get carried away but must remain under control was a conviction that dominated most of Western thinking both in pagan and in Christian days from early pagan society down to the 20th century. But that general perspective of Western culture... Um, very much expressed by Plato that emotions have to be controlled and not become excessive, I think that, that basic conviction is under challenge today. And there are many voices raised saying uh, Plato was too worried about emotions and uh, that the whole Western tradition has become somehow emotionally constricted and uh, that we now need to liberate the emotions and that emotions are good things that should be used more fully and more freely. And after all, uh, when we look at the uh, Old Testament, doesn't the Old Testament encourage that? Um, shout to the Lord with a song of triumph. Clap your hands. Uh, lift your hands in praise. Uh, what's the matter with you Presbyterians? Just sort of sitting there glumly. Uh, shouldn't we be uh, dancing and shouting and clapping and praising? Shouldn't we go upstairs? Um, uh, that kind of uh, emotional involvement in worship is what we need. It's what's biblical. It's what's good. That's one of the uh, arguments we're hearing uh, in our day. And so we want to, uh, to pause and reflect on that a little bit. Is it just that we have a, an aesthetic or a cultural prejudice against drums and synthesizers? Or is there a more substantial argument uh, that can be raised uh, in relation to them. Uh, in the 19th century already, uh, uh, there were Reformed theologians uh, reflecting on this question. One of them, again, was, or, uh, that we'll um, want to cite again, um, Robert Dabney, who uh, was very concerned about uh, the excess of emotion that was taking uh, place uh, in his day. And... Um, He's speaking the old Reformed point of view was opposed to all instruments in public worship. You do know that was the old Reformed point of view in opposition to all musical instruments in public worship. And Dabney wrote, When instruments came in, Ichabod was already beginning to be written on the church's spirituality. 
But he writes, there was one instrument, especially, that was the invention of the Dark Ages and the peculiar choice of the papacy. This instrument is part of a species, part of a system, and that system, when fully grown, is popery. To use this instrument is to start precisely down the road which the church traveled before, from apostolic Christianity to popery. Why are we starting down the same road and claiming that we are not going to go all the way to the bottom? What instrument did he have in mind? The organ. Nothing worse than the organ. There's the instrument of the devil if there ever was one. Dabney would probably say if you're going to have a decent instrument, uh, if you're going to have an instrument at all, at least have a modest one like a guitar. Well, uh, what, what is going on here in this old Reformed tradition of opposition uh, to musical instruments? Uh, I want to try to sketch for you the, um, the argument traditionally put forth in opposition to the use of musical instruments in public worship. Not that I would embrace such an argument or expect anyone else to embrace it in spite of its uh, irresistible logical force. Uh, I just want us to understand something of where our uh, forebears in the faith uh, came from. I want us to retrace the, uh, the path that almost all the great Reformed theologians held to. And uh, uh, although obviously we are uh, wiser and more understanding than they in these matters, nonetheless we should at least know something of the position uh, to which they held. Uh, the origin of the Reformed opposition to the use of musical instruments in public worship uh, goes back to the very beginning of the Reformed tradition. Uh, Ulrich Zwingli opposed the use of instruments in public worship, and so did John Calvin. Uh, the, the opposition to musical instruments was not an innovation of Puritans or some later part of the uh, Reformed tradition. It was the position from the beginning of the Reformed churches and in the beginning, all the Reformed churches followed that practice, as far as I've been able to discover. Um, the Scots held on to that tradition the longest, uh, but all held to it initially, including the Dutch. Yes, yes. You read uh, the great uh, 17th century Dutch uh, scholastic theologian, Gisbertus Fuchsius, and he opposes the use of the organ. Um, but uh, the Dutch reintroduced it earlier in the middle of the 17th century than did the Scots. Uh, but why did Calvin and uh, uh, all of the great theologians of the Reformed tradition, or almost all of them, uh, hold to this point of view? Uh, what moved them? Well, in part, I think what moved Calvin was, again, his study of history. What the study of history seems to show is that for the first thousand years of the history of the church, musical instruments were not used anywhere in public worship. Uh, that's not just a reformed reading of church history. Uh, Johannes Quaston, one of the great uh, Roman Catholic uh, students in our time of ancient church history, uh, argues that same thing that uh, till about the year 1000, instruments were not used anywhere in Christian public worship. Um, to this day, instruments are not used in the public worship of the Greek Orthodox churches. Which may mean <clears throat> that the majority opinion amongst Christians historically has been that instrumental music should not be used in the public worship of God. Today we tend to think of it as a very minor, weird point of view, almost cultic. And yet, in fact, it may actually be the majority practice in the history of the church. Uh, instruments were first introduced then in the Western church in the early, uh, well, not even early, in the uh, middle of the Middle Ages and uh, became prominent uh, particularly through the use of the organ 
in large cathedral churches in Western Europe. And therefore, when John Calvin came along, it's pretty clear that what Calvin thought he was doing was restoring the ancient practice of the church. He did not think he was being an innovator. He didn't think he was suggesting anything new or radical. Uh, He uh, had read the church fathers. The church fathers opposed musical instruments, and so did John Calvin. Now, when we read the church fathers, when we look back at the church fathers in the ancient church period, uh, the arguments of the church fathers against musical instruments um, seem to be several. One, musical instruments were not used in the synagogue. Um, There is no record of musical instruments being used in the synagogue, and to this day, Orthodox Jewish synagogues do not use musical instruments in their worship. Now, Jewish scholars have debated amongst themselves about this and have wondered whether uh, perhaps the lack of instruments in the synagogues uh, is a result of the destruction of the temple, that once the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the synagogues, as a kind of act of mourning, set aside their musical instruments and stopped using them. Uh, We don't know. There's no hard evidence about that. Other Jewish scholars say no musical instruments were never used in the synagogue. We just don't know. But to the extent the synagogue then influenced Christian practice, the absence of instruments from the synagogue may have influenced early Christian worship. Uh, Instruments were also attacked, secondly, by the fathers uh, because they were too emotional. And uh, here again, we may argue that uh, Plato had too much influence in the minds of the fathers. Uh, But in any case, that's what uh, many of the fathers argue. These instruments bring too much emotion into the worship, and uh, we don't uh, want it. Thirdly, the fathers argued uh, that the instruments um, were, in their minds, too associated with paganism. The instruments were used in pagan worship. They were used to accompany pagan sacrifices in the pagan altars. And the fathers said, we don't want to confuse Christian worship with pagan worship in the minds of worshipers, and so we we don't have instruments so that it's clear we are not involved in pagan worship. Now, um, Calvin clearly seems to have been influenced uh, by those arguments and to follow those arguments, Uh, but Calvin also elaborates an argument uh, uh, found to some extent in the Fathers but made much more of by the Reformed, And that is the argument that the instruments were used uh, only in the temple and were part of the temple service. And therefore, with the passing of the temple, the instruments also passed away. Calvin wrote, Musical instruments were among the legal ceremonies which Christ at his coming abolished. And therefore, we under the gospel must maintain a greater simplicity. He writes in another place, When believers uh, gather in their sacred assemblies, musical instruments in celebrating the praises of God would be no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting up of lamps, and the restoration of the other shadows of the law. The papists, therefore, have foolishly borrowed this, as well as many other things from the Jews. But we should always take care that no corruption creep in which might both defile the pure worship of God and involved men in superstition. Calvin, you see, was fairly strong about this point. Instruments are part of temple worship. They were part of, as Calvin often put it, the immaturity of the Jewish worship. And now that we have reached the maturity of the new covenant, we put away these childish things, these types and pointers, and we don't need them anymore. Well, wait a minute. Where does Calvin get this idea that musical instruments are types and pointers? Uh, Where does such a conception come? Aren't the musical instruments uh, quite different from that? Aren't they just aids to singing? Well, uh, Calvin and the Reformed tradition generally would often point to 2 Chronicles 29 in this discussion. Uh, 
Uh, if you look at Second Chronicles 29 at verse 25, the chronicler is descri- describing worship in the temple under King Hezekiah. Second Chronicles 29 at verse 25. Hezekiah stationed the Levites in the temple of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres in the way prescribed by David and Gad the king's seer and Nathan the prophet. This was commanded by God through his prophets. So the Levites stood ready with David's instruments and the priests with their trumpets. Hezekiah gave the order to sacrifice the burnt offering on the altar. As the offering began, singing to the Lord began also, accompanied by trumpets and the instruments of David, king of Israel. The whole assembly bowed in worship while the singers sang and the trumpeters played. All this continued until the sacrifice of the burnt offering was completed." And Calvin says, what does all this mean? Well, what it means is crystal clear. The instruments appointed by God by an immediate prophetic word given to David through the prophets, the instruments were appointed as part of the offering of the burnt offering in the temple. As the burnt offering was being offered, the instruments began to be played. When the offering concluded, the instruments stopped being played. And therefore, Calvin said, the playing of the instruments in the public worship of God was an essential element of temple worship and of sacrificial worship. And when that temple worship and that sacrificial worship ceased, it passed away with all the other elaborations, with all the other pointers. Well, how, how were these instruments a pointer? And what Calvin and the others seem to say is they are a pointer very much like Um, incense. Uh, The instruments symbolized, as did the incense, the lifting of praise and prayer to God. And what Calvin seems to hold is that once the temple passes away, the fulfillment has come in the new covenant community, praying and praising God immediately and directly without these types. And therefore, it is the voice alone that should be lifted in prayer and in praise to God. That is part of the simplicity, Calvin said, and the maturity of the children of God in the New Covenant. Hmm. Now, I'm not promoting this. I'm just recording what was said in the past. Well, how does this measure up with what we find in the New Testament? How does Calvin's approach uh, fare when we look into the New Testament? Well, what do we discover? We discover there is no evidence anywhere in the New Testament that instruments were used in the public worship of God. In fact, there are relatively few references to instruments in the New Testament. Uh, You do have... uh, Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians talking about a trumpet with an unclear sound, um, but he's not really talking about the need for good trumpeters in worship there. Uh, He's he's using it uh, for uh, illustrative purposes for another point. Ah, but you're thinking. I know what lurks in your hearts. Ah, but you're thinking. What about the book of Revelation? You were thinking that, weren't you? Admit it, it's all right. It's good to bring these things out in the open. Yes, there is a reference to uh, an instrument in worship in the book of the Revelation, chapter 5, at verse 8. Why don't we uh, begin reading at Revelation 5, verse 6. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came back and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. 
And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Well, there it is, isn't it? And the argument for instruments often goes this way. If instruments were appropriate in the Old Testament and instruments are used in heaven, why shouldn't the church be able to use instruments in the middle? We don't want to see the church as a, as a musicless dispensation, do we? A parenthesis between the Old Testament and heaven? Well, no, we don't want to see that. But you know, if you take a further look at this passage... Isn't every single thing, or at least almost every single thing in this passage, a symbol? When you get to heaven, do you think you're going to see a lamb? What do you think? No, what, what does that symbol stand for? It stands for Jesus, our sacrifice, right? When we get to heaven, we're going to see Jesus. We're not going to visually see a lamb. We will see the Lamb, but that Lamb is Jesus. This is a symbol. This is a, a way of speaking that points beyond itself. Are we going to see four living creatures and 24 elders? I hope there will be more elders than 24. Um, <laughs> will, will the Lamb that we see have seven horns and seven eyes and seven spirits? No, these are, all, these are all pointers to other realities, aren't they? The four living creatures, I think, uh, point to the whole of creation. The 24 elders, I think, point to Israel and the church, the, the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. The seven spirits refer to the, the omnipresence of God's spirit, the, the fullness of it. The 24 elders uh, fall down and each had a had a, a, a golden bowl full of incense. And here you see, interestingly, the book of the Revelation tells us that that's only a symbol, which are the prayers of the saints. The bowls of incense uh, are symbols of the prayers of the saints. So is it only the harp here that is to be taken literally? Or does the harp itself also point beyond itself as a pointer? Is is this vision of the heavenly temple couched in Old Testament terms, using those Old Testament terms precisely as pointers to the fullness of the new covenant? The Old Testament term of the lamb as the sacrifice, pointing to Christ. The Old Testament term of incense as the prayers of the people. Is it then the harp also an Old Testament symbol pointing to a New Testament reality? In Revelation 14, verse 2, we read, And I heard a voice from heaven. The voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Harps stand for voices raised in communication with God. That's what I would argue. And that therefore, um, Revelation 5, the one, one of the clearest passages in which instruments seem to be used uh, in worship in the New Testament um, I don't think means quite what it means on the surface. I don't think it justifies quite what it justifies. Ah, but what about Psalm 150? I know all the secrets of your hearts. <laughs> I have a spirit of prophecy upon me today. What about Psalm 150? We just sang that, didn't we? Sang it, sang it wonderfully with gusto, maybe even a little bit of emotion. We didn't get carried away, but we had a little bit of emotion in that singing. That was good. And, and that, that psalm is the great culmination of the Psalter. You know, there's movement in the Psalter as a whole. The earlier psalms... Um, have a great number of psalms of lament and mourning. And as you move through the Psalter, the, the element of praise begins to build. And the Psalter, the book of praises, then culminates in this great outburst of praise in Psalm 150. Uh, the, the most fulsome praise to God in the whole of the Psalter, where 
where we are called to praise God everywhere, in His sanctuary on earth, under all of His heaven. We're, we're to praise Him for His wonderful greatness. We're to praise Him for everything that He is and, and that He's done. We're to praise Him with all that we are and have. Uh, praise Him with all, uh, all, things, all creatures that have breath. Praise the Lord. And then we're called upon to praise Him. And, and then follows this list of instruments, um, which uh, some Roman Catholic translated as an organ. Um, just kidding, just kidding. But, but this wonderful, fulsome uh, number of, uh, of, of instruments, stringed instruments and percussion instruments, banging cymbals, lots of cymbals, banging away, praising, praising the Lord. And uh, if, if one of the ways in which we could summarize our praise is, is to talk about this range of instruments, how can we say we shouldn't use instruments? Well, that, that apparently, at first glance, is a strong argument, if a somewhat abstract one. Because I find that many of the people that um, appeal to Psalm 150 have troubles with one phrase in that psalm. In fact, I've seen versions of Psalm 150 that are set to music where that one phrase disappears. It's a sort of reformed revision, the reformed revised version of Psalm 150, where that little phrase, praise him with dance, somehow disappears. Hmm. The plot thickens. What, what is going on here? Is Psalm 150, after all, the great text that shows us we should be dancing in the Spirit? Uh, is our uh, firm uh, commitment to being seated just one more evidence of our excessive frozenness as Reformed people? Well, you see, this is what I mean when I say uh, we, we mustn't think abstractly. When the psalmist says, praise him with dance, we mustn't say, all right, I know what dancing is. Well, actually, I don't. I never was very good at it. Um, but some of you know what dancing is, and obviously what the Lord wants us to do is to boogaloo in the aisles. <laughs> I mean, isn't that that's the way some people dance today? And, and it says, praise Him with dancing, so it must mean that, that I should do that. Some of us may be a little sedate and do the minuet or the waltz or uh, a square dance, but nonetheless... Uh, but you see, that, that's an abstracted way of thinking. What we have to ask is, when Israel heard the words, praise him with dance, what would Israel have thought of? And then we have to ask ourselves, well, what are we told about dancing in the Old Testament? Who dances in the Old Testament? Well, we'll get to David. Now, wait a minute. Miriam danced? The, uh, the women, the young women at the, um, at the festival of the harvest danced. So we see that, that dancing is a social activity in Israel. It's, it's, a, it's a celebration of harvest home. That's one way they dance. Uh, you, you, we mentioned Miriam. Uh, Miriam and her women danced to do what? Celebrate the victory of God's people in battle. The men went out to battle, and when the men came home victorious, the women danced to welcome them home. So when Israel heard, praise him with a the dance, they may have thought of harvest and the celebrations and joy of the Lord's provision of food, his, his creative blessing upon them. Uh, they may have, uh, Israel would have thought of the celebrations of the victories that God had given to the armies of Israel, uh, a manifestation of his redemptive power amongst them. The last song we sang, you know, was a song of praise of God of Creator. The, the book of the Revelation tells us that the old song is the song of creation. The new song is the song of redemption. And we need to sing both songs to God. We praise Him for creation. Uh, we, we dance uh, in, uh, in social gatherings in thanks for creation. Uh, the women of Israel danced in praise of God for His redeeming the armies of Israel. Um, and then David danced. Perhaps the most famous dance in Israel. Um, 
Again, thankfully, uh, uh, David's dancing does not seem regularly to be literally uh, followed in most of the churches. Um, <laughs> not much naked dancing going on, uh, we're glad to report. But then we have to ask, now what exactly is going on when David dances? Because it does seem that David is dancing to worship, right? He dances before the ark. He's, he dances before the ark as the ark is going up to Jerusalem. Now, what, what is going on here? This is a very peculiar story. Nakedness is not highly prized in the Old Testament. They were a modest bunch, those Israelites. Well, I think the best interpretation is that not that, that uh, uh, David had no clothes on, but that David took off the insignia of office that he wore. It was not that he was bare. It was that he uh, divested himself of the clothes unique to the king of Israel and that it was an act of humility. And he says, uh, it was the Lord who gave us Jerusalem. It is the Lord who takes up his ark to his holy city. It is the Lord who has done all for us, and I do not walk before the ark as a proud king, claiming it is by my wisdom or by my might that Israel has, has had the victory. I divest myself of office so that God may have the glory. And indeed, I take the role of a woman, and I dance before the ark, celebrating the Lord's victory just as a woman who has not gone forth to battle celebrates the victory when the men come back. And that's why his wife despised him. My father Saul knew how to be king. He never took off his crown. He would never have taken the role of the woman. He would have stood up and said, it is by my leadership that we won the battle. But David humbled himself before the Lord and said, no, I claim no credit for my arms. I claim no credit for my victory. It's a little like um, that wonderful movie of Henry V that Kenneth Branagh did. Has, have, has anybody, did anybody see that movie? A, a few people. It's, uh, it's a wonderful film, film version of that wonderful Shakespearean play. And uh, at the end, the report comes in that the French have lost the Battle of Agincourt and that the French died by the thousands and then Henry turns and, and, and with fear in his voice says, how many English died? How many of my troops? If the French lost their thousands and we were outnumbered about 10 to 1 on the battlefield, how many English died? And the report is 25 died. That was all. Now we historians uh, know that it was because the English had, had it was technology. Uh, the English had the longbow and they were able to shoot from afar and killed the French in, in droves. But poor Henry, not having the advantage of a historian uh, right with him, uh, declared that God had fought for them. And of course, those two things are really not at odds with each other. And he said, let no one claim any glory to English arms, but give all glory to God. Henry was doing exactly what David had done. And Henry said, let us immediately repair to the church to give thanks to God, and as we go, let us sing the known nobis. Who knows what... I sat in the theater feeling very smug. <laughs> I sat in the th theater thinking, I bet I'm the only one here who knows what the known nobis is. Who knows what the known nobis is? Not unto us. There's a classically educated gentleman, you see. Now, what is not, un not unto us? A psalm. Which psalm? See, you don't sing the psalms enough. <laughs> psalm 150, 115. Not unto us. That's what no nobis means in Latin. Not to us, but to thy name be glory, O God. Hymn number 68. We'll sing it at the end, okay? Give you something to look forward to. Um, but, but that's what David was doing when he danced before the Lord. He was entering into that celebration of the military victory of the Lord. There was no dancing in the temple of God as part of God's worship. This was a military separation. Now, of course, in Israel, you can't neatly separate all of these things out. But nonetheless, what was primarily going on as the ark went up to Jerusalem was a military celebration. 
God is to be enthroned after his victory in capturing the city of Jerusalem. And so when the people of Israel heard praise him with dance, they didn't think, oh boy, the temple had all dance around in the courts. They would have thought, yes, for his mercy to us in our harvests, for his mercy to us in our military victories, we have had in our history dancing to praise his name. And I would say exactly the same is true with the instruments. Though each one of those instruments had a role in Israel's history. You can, you can look up each of those instruments in your concordance and find that some of those instruments were used in the temple to accompany the burnt sacrifice. Some of those instruments called Israel to battle. Some of those instruments led them forth into battle. Some of them called them to holy convocations. This is not talking narrowly about worship in Psalm 150. It's talking about praising God in every part of the life. Now, I think it is true that when Calvin and the ancient fathers and our Reformed tradition said instruments are not to be used in public worship, what they primarily meant was the instrument should not have a separate voice in worship. I don't think Calvin was primarily thinking of the role of, of instruments to accompany singing. He was primarily thinking of just playing the organ by itself as an act of praise. In fact, uh, some years ago we had a dedication of an organ in our church. It really wasn't much of an organ. I didn't think it really deserved all that big a dedication. But in any case, uh, we, we had, a, we had a, 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 an organist come in to play it, uh, a professional organist, and um, all the preachers grumbled because they paid that organist a lot more than they ever paid a preacher to preach in that church. But anyway, we, we don't want to get in, in, we don't want to be bitter, don't want to be bitter. Um, uh, but the organist himself said, the organist was a Presbyterian, and the organist himself said, you know what we're doing tonight, John Calvin would not have approved of. And then he told a little joke. Uh, and even though we shouldn't have too much frivolity, it's a good joke, so I'll repeat it. Uh, in the late 19th century, he said, in the Church of Scotland, the, the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, uh, there was a man by the name of Mr. McPherson who opposed the introduction of organs to the public worship of God. But by the late 19th century, most Presbyterians in the Church of Scotland wanted organs, and so there was a lot of pressure on the session to bring an organ in, but Mr. McPherson stood fast in the old ways and said to the elders, the day an organ comes into this church is the day I leave. The accent sometimes becomes Irish, so you'll have to forgive me. <laughs> so the elders, you know, worried about this and fretted about it, but finally they said, it's only Brother McPherson who opposes the organ. Everybody else wants it, so we're going to have an organ. And they told him, and sure enough, the first Sabbath that the organ was in the church, Mr. McPherson was not there. Some weeks later, as they were coming out of church, they observed Mr. McPherson coming out of the Methodist church across the street. And they said to him, Mr. McPherson, come back to us. And he said, I told you, I wouldn't have come into church if there's an organ. And they said, but the Methodists have an organ and they've had it much longer than we have. And he says, oh, an organ is all right for the Methodists, but it has no place in the house of God. <laughs> Well, what is clear, I think, from our Reformed heritage is um, we have a deep suspicion of the notion that instruments ought to be employed to work up the crowd. That instruments ought to be a separate act of praise as if the instruments had a voice of their own with which to praise God. And I think it should be the unanimous consensus of our Reformed tradition that it is human voices that are to praise God. Now, we may debate whether the, the instrument is a, a circumstance of worship to aid in the singing. Um, and uh, uh, we could discuss that at greater length uh, if we wanted. Um, but uh, what I think is tremendously valuable out of our heritage is to say that instruments by themselves are not in themselves 
uh, as acts of worship part of the praise of God. And I think that helps us then uh, when we uh, reflect on structuring our service. Should we have drums and synthesizers? I would say no, because they are not primarily helping the singing and in fact often harm the singing. But of course that can be true of the organ as well. If the organ, if there's a wonderful pipe organ uh, that's playing uh, uh, beautifully all sorts of descants and uh, harmonies, you, some of us poor slobs who aren't very musical uh, can't hear the melody. Sometimes can't hear the singing of our, of our, our fellow worshipers. And, and it, does that then violate an essential notion? And you see, this is useful because this is not really a, a conflict between traditionalists who love their organ and modernists, that may be an unfortunate way of putting it, uh, uh, who love their synthesizer and drums. It's a question of how do we praise God? What is the scriptural warrant for praising God? And what function should the instruments have uh, in that praise. Because it's all part, you see, of the issue of emotion. Uh, how do we legitimately and how do we illegitimately use emotion in the worship of God? And some forms of music, both instrumental and even a cappella, are more suited to the worship of God than others. Uh, I uh, read some years back now a book by the name, uh, with, with the fascinating title, The Triumph of Vulgarity. Here was a book for our times. Uh, writ published by the Oxford University Press, written by a rather distinguished uh, scholar by the name of Robert Pattison. It's not, as far as I could tell, a specifically Christian book, but he is discussing the character of rock music. And... Um, he says rock music is vulgar. And, and all he means by that is, is that it is immediately accessible to the common and uneducated. That it's common. It's easy. And his thesis is that rock music is vulgar pantheism. Rock music is pantheism for the masses. And that rock music, therefore, is the logical extension of elitist pantheism found in the romantic music of the 19th century for the elites. Richard Wagner being the principal example. And, of course, those of us who like Wagner um, think that elitist pantheism is better than vulgar pantheism. <laughs> What the conclusion probably is, is that a little Wagner is all right and a little rock music may be all right as long as you don't take it too seriously. But Patterson, very interestingly, specifically raises the question, is rock music a vehicle that can be used by the Christian church? And again, I'm not sure he's, he's raising this from a, 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 a position of Christian faith. He's, he's just interested in the character of this music and its impact on our culture. And this is what he write, writes. Some dreamers have hoped to harness rock to propagate the values of transcendent ideologies like Christianity. But rock is useless to teach any transcendent value. The instigators of these projects merely promote the pagan rites they hope to co-opt. Rock's electricity, as much as its pantheist heritage, gives the lie to whatever enlightened propaganda may be foisted on it. The rocker is simultaneously alone with himself and at one with the universe. That's why rock music has to be so loud. You don't want to hear everybody else around you. You want to be alone with the music and at one with the universe. You want to be dissolved in the music. That's also why it needs to be loud. There can be no distractions. You want to transcend yourself in the music. This guy's probably just old and grumpy. <laughs> no intermediate state of transcendence, such as Christianity or school book morality preaches, is likely to appeal to the rock, rocker. He takes his pantheism neat. Rock knocks the props out from under religion, first by shifting the locus of faith from God to self, 
And secondly, by depriving churches of their claim to exclusive revelation. By forcing churches to compete on the basis of their ability to titivate the instincts of their worshipers, vulgar pantheism compels the champions of organized religions to abandon their pretension to superior truth and turns them into entrepreneurs of emotional stimulation. Once God becomes a commodity used for self-gratification, his fortunes depend on the vagaries of the emotional marketplace. In the age of rock, one would expect to find both a decline in attendance at traditional church services, especially among the young, and a simultaneous proliferation of religious cults that cater to the emotions that cannot be satisfied by established ritual. And this is just what the facts indicate. Again, this is no grumpy fundamentalist writing this. Uh, This is a, a reasoned reflection on what's going on culturally. Rock cannot carry Christian worship. It cannot carry the words of Christian worship. It cannot carry the truths of Christian worship because it does not direct the worshiper to God, but directs the worship to the experience of emotion in and of itself. It becomes an end in itself. And I I think Patterson is right about that in relation to rock music. Um, But it's not only hard rock that could do that. Some contemplative forms of soft rock are just the same. Like the example I used, I don't know if, it, I don't know if a musician would call it rock, but that example of uh, that song, Alleluia, where you just say Alleluia over and over again. Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Um, I should never uh, try to sing anything, but... Um, what is the purpose of that song? It's, it, it's pantheistic in its purpose. It's the one we would experience with the all. It, it's, it, it, we use uh, foreign words that uh, have no clear meaning. They're almost like glossolalia. It's just syllable sounds that we use to sort of put the mind to sleep and experience. But what are we experiencing? Is it God we're experiencing or are we just experiencing experience? And that, I think, is what is the the real tendency of this music and the great danger. And, and that's why I, I worry about a tendency in the church to separate the music of the adults or the old folks from the music of the young. It's inherently bad to split up the church that way, but it really tends to program the young to find the church unacceptable and boring. This is not a new problem. I ran across this quotation by a Presbyterian music committee in 1872 who wrote in the preface to their new youth hymnal, one of the reasons why children in the Sabbath school do not like to go to church is that they are trained to a boisterous, sensational, and effervescent style of music in the Sabbath school. And by this their tastes are perverted so that the refined and elevated melodies used in singing the songs of Zion are insipid and dull to them. See, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, Plato complained about how wild music was ruining the young. But we have to be thoughtful about that. We have to ask, what is the contrast between how we teach children to praise God and how the church praises God? And particularly, it seems to me, we have to avoid turning music, as I think we too often do, into a new sacrament. It seems to me that that is a fair way of describing a great deal of what goes on in our time. You know, a sacrament is a way in which God comes to us. The church historically understood music as a way in which we go to God. In the conversation, in the dialogue between man and God, music was part of our way of speaking to God. But in the new music of the church, I think music is seen as a sacrament where God comes to us. We want to experience God. We don't want to talk to Him. We want to experience Him. He comes to us. And as we said yesterday, the danger there is that this becomes a form of pantheism, a form of Hinduism, a form of self-transcendence. 
not into the personal God revealed in history and in the scripture, but to this vague emotional all to whom we are connected. So while we may not be able to uh, agree with the great Reformed theologians that we ought to sing only psalms without musical accompaniment, we ought to ask the question, how can we avoid some of the dangers of our time and make our worship really distinctive as we lift our voices in praise to God? That will require some new tunes. We, we don't want to sound just like the 19th century. But it will require great thoughtfulness on the part of the church as to what tunes will really carry the message that God would have on our lips. Can, can we take a minute and sing the Non Nobis? What number? 68. 68. 